Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello everyone, this is episode, well, 110? what is it? 110! And I'm so being we're... recorded again! We are we are now the Messerschmitt BF one ten, a twin engined fighter with a two seat com, uh, compartment, which is fitting because we are two people. Sadly, mm. uh, Jamie has had to go and uh, howl at the moon. It's good for him. It's good for him to let his lupine side out occasionally. <laughs> <sighs> but no, it's an interesting day because we got. We've got a lot of things to discuss. Um, mm. There's the we are going to try and avoid getting to the debate, which seems to be once again circulating as to whether or not Navy should be all submarines, on whether or not surface ships have any place, because apparently the Russians keep getting their surface mm -hmm. ships killed. So apparently, this means everyone's surface ships should get killed. But there is a point I would like to make in that this is what has led me into the sort of the first discussion today, which we'll get into mm. at some point. Uh, we're also going to be talking about drones, we're talking about missiles, we're going to be going to talk about the submarines pointing their um, <clears throat> surface-to-air short uh, surface-to-air missiles at aircraft, and whether or not that's a good idea for them to be doing. But the thing is, once I saw the sort of discussions going on about the Russians and the various discussions that were coming in, I was reminded of a video of Ryan Macbeth, which some people will know he's a YouTuber. He usually does tech stuff, but he also does stuff about his time in the army. And he's been doing a whole load of shorts about his sort of advice for Ukraine and things going on. And he's pretty darn cool, but he's got a video which is called Army Stories. And it's a bit of a series. There's a couple of them. Um, and there's one which is there's only one thief in the army. And to paraphrase his story, and please go look it up if you um, if you haven't heard it, because it's quite a, fun, a funny story. Basically... There was a, a, a building built between two forward operating bases. And this building blocked radio signals. And so they couldn't, the quick reaction force couldn't get the signal in time it needed to operate. And he kept going around trying to solve this problem because he was a sergeant. And sergeants are usually the people who solve problems, aren't they, Jack? That's usually what you sort of do. And he ends up solving this problem because the comms people, etc., were all saying it couldn't be done, this, that, there. By finding some antennas which weren't being used, which had been left over by a previous um, previous rotation, and arranging them so that they raised up the height of the antennae so they could get a signal. And then he gets told off for doing that. And the reason this story comes in is because... In the nicest way, the sergeant shouldn't have been having to do that. It should have been the comms officer for the battalion who'd sorted that out. Because if you if you see a building being built and that's going to interfere in your radio signals, surely the first thing to do if you can't knock down the building is to raise the height of your antennae? Or am I being stupid, Drac? Please, tell me. You're the engineer in this conversation. Is this me being too logical? Um, well, I think it's, I think it's probably more a factor of something I experienced quite a lot in my engineering days, which is that, you know, some, something will happen 
And the people who are supposed to fix the problem are told you need to fix the problem. And then they turn around and say, yeah, but the standard issue equipment we have only does this. And the problem is different to what the standard fit does. Therefore, the problem cannot be solved. So in this case, you know, the communications people, they have their standard communications equipment. But if the standard antenna is only 10 foot tall and you need a 20 foot antenna, they'll just turn around and say, well, we've only got a 10 foot antenna. So if we need a 20 foot antenna, I don't know what to do because we don't have any 20 foot antenna. It's it's almost the, uh, you know, computer says no school of tech support, as opposed to the practical side of things, which will go, well, well, how about we get a 10 foot stick and stick the 10 foot antenna on the 10 foot stick, thus making a 20 foot antenna. But that's not standard practice. That's not in any manual. That's the problem. I found I found this a whole uh, an, an awful lot when it came to engineering, um, you know, you, you it could be something more on the the structural civil side of things of you know um something like this arch whether the customer would like this archway um or this you know big wide doorway between two rooms in this skyscraper they would like it to be 15 foot wide and everyone's looking at going okay but a gap that wide is going to need an RSJ to support it. Yeah, but the, the RSJs that we have are either a little bit too short. Okay, we won't use those. Or, um, you know, well, we've got this 25-foot RSJ, but but that'll be too long. So we can't, well, they're going to have to expand their opening to 25-foot or narrow it to 10. And I'm sitting there going, or you could get out the plasma cutter and lock or angle grinder or any of the multiple multiplicity of metal cutting tools that are found on con large construction sites and lop a bit off the 25 foot RSJ. Oh no, but then it won't be a standard size. Do you seriously think anything else in this place is standard size? <laughs> um, oh. and, and it's, it's the same thing. You get the same kind of stuff with all sorts of things, you know, like um, when, when I was working in Croydon, it's like, we put this bollard in to protect pedestrians because people keep running over this corner. Okay, good. Well, I'm the one who put it in. And then people are like, oh, but it keeps getting knocked over and it's expensive to reinstate. Well, how about we get one that sits deeper in there so that it can't be knocked over? Oh, but, but bollards don't come in anything other than this standard one that goes in about two to three foot into the ground. Well, can we improvise? Because I don't know if you've seen the underside of a bollard or a, um, or particularly my favorite, the bell bollards, the big yeah. metal ones. You know, if you've seen the underside of those things, it's literally just a metal pole with a bunch of spot welded, um, spot welded old metal cable and rods stuck onto it. So it looks a little bit like a, a particularly nasty hair comb and it just sits into the concrete. And some of the more recent ones are literally just a pole or a, a slat or something was for easy installation. It's like that's not really the point, but never mind. Um, and you know, everyone's like, Oh, no, yeah, the, but the standard depth will just get ripped out when it gets hit by a lorry. So I'm just like, Okay, well, you know, we've got three broken ones, they're broken at the surface. How about we take the th <laughs> you know, the bits that were still in the ground 
How about we attach those to this newest bell bollard, which is an even a more stable design than the vertical ones? Yeah. And then we put a ton of concrete in there. And then nothing short of a tank is going to dislodge it. And in fact, that even the tank won't. And they're like, oh, but that's not standard process practice. Okay. Well, I'm now saying it's standard practice. <laughs> and then and then about a week later, you start getting angry letters from and emails from people that oh, I I ran over this bollard and it ripped the side of my my car out or it you know tore the underside of my truck out. It's like, yes, that's what they're supposed to do. Why did you yeah. think driving across but I normally drive across bollards and they crush? That's not what they're designed to do. <laughs> Yeah, and he sort of goes, if you're writing that letter, you've broken a bollard, yes. and you're not only admitting to it, you're saying it's actually done damage to me like it's supposed to. Yeah, You're doing illegal driving, vandalism, and uh, what kind of ego do you have to have to write that letter in the first place? Well, it's, it's like it's like, uh, it's like one, one person who wrote a letter in, um, while I was still working, again, while I was working at Croydon, um, because they they'd run into the back of one of our um highways maintenance vehicles that was parked up in a properly marked bay um and their excuse and trying to blame the council for it was that they were joining a main road yeah so they they're joining so they have to pass a stop line and they said well when they're joining this um vehicle was parked um, as a in a marked bay on a on a lane that eventually merges down, and as you know, you know rules of the road. If you are joining a major road and you have to stop at a stop line, then you do not have right of way. The other vehicle, the vehicles already on the main road, have the right of way. You have to look for a gap and slot into that gap. And her letter it literally just said. I pulled onto the highway, as is my right, and nobody on the highway was letting me on into the next lane. So I had to keep going. And as I kept going, there was this council vehicle in the way, and then I ran into it. So it's based, so it's your fault, and you need to pay me money for my broken car. And I just emailed her back, you know. <laughs> um, well, according to the highway code, you wait for to merge in. You do not try and play, you know shotgun jockey with cars already in the active lane no you don't and the like, nicest way that's a nice way to uh that, that, that that's called what the police would call a slam dunk prosecution yeah this is like well you, you've you've just admitted in writing to and signed and an dated yeah cause it to causing an accident by not uh following the, the rules of the road so well done mysteriously didn't hear from that person again <laughs> And by the way, you're not going to get any insurance payout on that one. No, but um, yeah. So, and, and and I think this is the thing. It, you know, people. Okay, it, the military does have does run somewhat differently from civilian life in a number of ways, but the military is still made up of people, and you are going to end up with a fair number of people who are just going to sit there and go, "This is the standard. This is what the manual says. I'm not deviating from it." And then you're going to get issues, and um, and it, it kind of actually loops back in some ways to something we've mentioned in previous episodes. When it even comes, when it goes even all the way up to senior staff levels, because 
during extended periods of peace, you get this kind of by the book rate manual says this regulation says that no deviation, no allowance for um, spontaneous thought. And people then get cashiered and, and drummed out of the service for very small things, which potentially then robs you of, of future generations of leaders who would actually know what they're doing and be able to improvise in in times of war well we talked about this you know if you look if you look at one of the unifying factors between almost every single the one of them the best and uh, the uh, best admirals mm. in world war ii is that almost every single one of them seems to have crashed the destroyer at some point nimitz yeah. crashed the destroyer vian crashed free mm. um somerville had crashed the destroyer i think uh Cunningham I can actually, very close. Cunningham actually, no, Cunningham had crashed the destroyer. He just got off on a technicality or that he hadn't actually crashed mm. it. Um, you know, th th literally the list of admirals which would never have made it today because they crashed destroyers. And it's, you know, you can almost go through every senior admiral who was, who we would consider very good at their jobs mm. in World War II and almost it's almost like a rite of passage. Did you crash a destroyer? Yes. And what were you doing when you crashed a destroyer? Oh, I was high speed racing my admiral to get back to port first. Or I was trying to reverse into the harbor so I could do a three point turn and get out of Malta in space where it frankly I should have been waiting for a tugboat. <laughs> or um I was trying to speed to see how fast I could go and whether I could beat the new crew and the new new aircraft carrier. And it's basically it's it's a list of hmm. things which, frankly, you probably shouldn't have been doing, but are pretty darn cool reasons for crashing. And it's it's this thing, isn't it, of, you know, extended periods of peacetime leads to everybody just doing things by the book because and and to be honest, in some ways, some people are just like that. But other sometimes it's difficult to blame them for those kinds of actions because the higher echelons of command which are the ones who dictate their careers end up acting in that manner. And, you know, as much as you might like to be an innovative and and free thinking um, officer or NCO or whatever, and actually get the job done. If your alternatives are stick by the book or get fired, you're going to end up sticking by the book. But this is actually where the Ryan Macbeth story comes in and it mm. might makes me interested. It's because it takes place in Afghanistan. Hmm. He's actually in a forward operating basis and presumably in action, dealing with combat issues, etc. Hmm. All these things coming up, and this is the this is the radio contact needed for the quick reaction force, the people who are supposed to be responding to problems to assist if their base if a forward operating base comes under attack. You would presume that would be governed not by computer says no you'd be uh, presumed that would be examined under we are under combat scenario we uh, we are under combat we're dealing with these problems we need to make sure it works yeah but you see that again the thing is it's people going well i'm not personally at risk at this point therefore i don't care and i'm not i'm not un and i'm relatively unlikely to be at risk from the consequences of this therefore i don't care um i mean you I, i'm reminded of the the interviews we did with um Michael Clapp, Julian Thompson, and Steve George. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Falklands again is a 
it's a whole mix of examples of that you've got well there's the whole decision afterwards that combat experience would not be used as a faction promotions so a whole lot of people who got experience in Falklands were, mm. were got rid of afterwards because it was presumed that anyone else who'd been sent down there would have done just as good a job <laughs> ignoring yeah. the fact that they'd gone down there done the job so they had the experience but then but then you, you even look at the small things that were occurring during the war you know you you had things like inventing a jamming pod for the harriers out of one that had been developed over the course of multiple years for the tornadoes but they invent they they adapted it to the harrier in the in a matter of a couple of weeks whereas in peacetime it would have been a case of oh no well you know that's going to be a 30 million pound two-year project to you know do 50 billion risk assessments and impact statements and so on and so forth before we, we, we it, bother looking at it if i remember that story correctly it was three ncos told make it so yeah um and then and and you know and i mean even the 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 quick retrofitting of invincible is a classic example of both both schools of thought because you have the peacetime school of thought that was going oh no well we're we're only ever going to use this ship on reforger exercises so we don't we can we can get cheap and cheerful plastic fuel hoses that'll perish in two weeks because we'll always be able to replace them versus the more practical side of things where people went oh you know well that's not going to work going down on multiple months in the falklands I know. Let's get on a bunch of small boats and raid the reserve fleet for you know back in a, <laughs> for all their aircraft handling equipment back in the day when fuel hoses were made to last. Yes. Um, and 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 you you get this kind of stuff back and forth all the time. You remember, like Steve George was saying about that that Sea King that returned from uh, an ASW patrol with something broken, and it was a raging storm outside. And everybody in the hangar deck was like, okay, well, it's not flight inoperable. It just needs a bit of a fix. So le let's leave it on the hat on the flight deck for the minute and we'll go and look at it later because it's not an urgent, urgent issue. We don't need to mm. do this right now. Um, and somebody in the upper superstructure decided, you know, standard practice says if a broken aircraft comes in, the broken aircraft is immediately returned to the hangar deck and immediately drop the flight lift with a two inches of standing water on the flight deck. <laughs> And set off Niagara Falls in the hangar. Yeah. So um, yeah, it, it, you'll see this kind of stuff all the time, and it's it's. I think this the the general point which we're trying to illustrate in in the larger sense is that no military is free of this kind of stuff. No military is free of people who are going by the book or people who are you know just not doing their job properly because regulate no one's written a regulation for this exact scenario um and so on the 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 only difference really is to what extent is this present in this particular organization obviously if at the moment um <laughs> it's somewhat more more there's a there's a you know the, the, these issues appear to be slightly more prevalent in uh, the Russian military than we could say should be average. <laughs> but also, I would say there are some gaps noticing the Russian military is sort of... Mm. We're talking about, recently there was an attack on their ships in harbour. Mm. And you sit there and go, people go, this is devastating, this is new. And they're going, have you not seen Toronto? Pearl Harbour? There have been attacks on ships in harbour for years. And mm. the thing is, you're supposed to mitigate against it. And if you're not... If you haven't got air defense, if you haven't got protections to when the ships come into harbor, then that's not the ship's fault. 
Yeah, and it's also not the... certain surface ships are now super weak. It's that you haven't learned the lessons of what? Yeah, well, and how the, many the years of history? The closest parallel to this particular that to that particular incident even happened not tremendously far away, Suda Bay. Because let's yeah. face it, what what is this? A a bunch of explosive filled small boats charging at a bunch of targets to try and blow them up. That's exactly what happened in Suda Bay with the Italians. Yeah. The only difference being, of course, these days there we can radio control them from further away, whereas the, the Italians had to drive drive them to within a few hundred yards and bail. <laughs> but the the principle is basically the same. Although again, you know, that that from what little we know, because of course, again, there's a lot of um, lots of restrictions from both sides on exactly what's being reported about what happened. Um, but the um, from from what we can see, actually happened in terms of the videos that have been released and so forth. It, it, I find it quite interesting because you you again have this kind of dichotomy of some people thinking for themselves and some people really not because you've got um the fact that they're even able to get this close you know there, there should be yeah. booms nets patrol boats etc further out that should have stopped them before they got close yeah um but this should have been a nasty fight several miles away from the port mm. So, but you know, so that's on one hand, that's a failure. On the other hand, there's at least one of the one of those videos where some enterprising individual in what looks like an MI17 has gone up with a, a door gun <laughs> with a heavy machine gun and is circling the thing, blazing away at it. Um, and then and then a shell splash, which indicates maybe someone with a deck gun has taken a pot shot as well. Which is the other that's the other side of things. Someone's Somebody has clearly looked around because I don't think that particular type of helicopter is common carriage on Russian naval vessels. That looks like a, a land-based helicopter. But somebody has clearly seen what's happening and gone, oh, you know, there's nothing in the book to deal with unmanned surface kamikaze boat attack. But I bet you if it is an unmanned kamikaze surface boat attack, there's probably a lot of explosives in there and they probably don't react very well to being shot. <laughs> Let's get the door gunner to take a few pot shots at them. So someone there was clearly thinking on their feet. Which is good. Mm. I'm just hoping that officer gets a, that, that officer or NCOs get promotions rather than get shouted at for not doing something which was in the book. Mm. So, yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting set of circumstances but as i said you know every military has these issues it's just what yeah. to what ratio do these issues occur and where are they occurring and that all of that which obviously is relatively unquantifiable for most people is going to dictate how much are those things going to bite you when when the curtain goes up and you have to actually put everything into action But so uh, you know, spe speaking of issues, <laughs> um, I, I was recently reminded of the fact that um, the Royal Navy's escort forces are due to be composed of four different classes of major surface combatant. 
because we're supposed to we've got the type 45s the very first type 26 is either supposed to be in the water or shortly to be in the water uh glasgow yes and then there's the type 31s and then there's and, the type 23s yes uh, you know, I, 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 and then once we get rid of the type 23s probably and once you got all the type 26 and 31s in service you're probably going to start with the type 83 production so we're going to have four again mm. well at that point it'll be five because if they've got the first if the first type 83s are entering service while the last type 45s are still in service you'll have the type 45 the type 83 the type 26 the type 31 and the type 32 of course yes uh, three of three of them. The Although 26th. you and I both have strong suspicions that the thirty-one and thirty-two will be very, it will be same hull, different fit, which would be the same thing to do. That would certainly be the same thing to do. But again, the same thing to do would have been to do that with the Type twenty-six and do them all mm. same hull, different fit, um, and just have a couple of yards building them. But you and I, that wasn't going to happen. And frankly. Let's be honest, the Type 31 is a good export model, so hopefully we can get a we can churn into a sort of well, let's be honest. I've started I do not call the Type 31s in my head frigates. I call mm. them sloops. Because I consider the anti-submarine sort of the well, maybe corvettes, but sloops is what I usually refer to them as in my head. Mm -hmm. The type 26s are frigates because they're anti-submarine warfare vessels. Type 45s, anti-aircraft vessels, type 83 uh, destroyers. Type 83s, if they're going to be general purpose uh, ships, etc., as they keep talking about them, rather than air defender ships, which is with the eight they're supposed to be as general purpose, they're probably going to actually be cruisers, but we'll probably call them destroyers because we can't have cruisers because that's Imperial. But let's be honest, the Type 31s are going to be doing patrol, presence, task group, and mine warfare in, well, 31s and 32s. They're going to be sloops. That's what sloops did. Mm. Well, <sighs> you know, this is the, this is the thing that, in some way, in a lot of ways, irritates me that we have a relatively small navy, and we're still insisting on, um, on on having all these. Well, we're not still. This is this is a relative relatively new thing after quite a few years of somewhat saner um class splits we've got all we've got all these different specifications for all these different um ships going around that are all very very heavily overlapping when in fact yeah. there could be a huge amount of what's the best way to put it there could be a huge amount of common hull design which would save a huge amount of money and complexity. Especially in training. Mm. Because if you have a common hull, you could also have a common engine. But there again, you would then have to raft everyone because everyone's hull would have to be designed with ASW specs, so it would all be expensive. Mm. And this is, what they, this is where they come into. So this is the debate, okay? The debate between the specialist hulls, etc., is to make a hull that's specialised and able to do everything to even 90%. 95% capability in each uh, in each area is going to be very expensive because if you're going to have to carry all the computers and all the heavy radars you need for air defense that's going to introduce a lot of top weight and it's going to reduce a lot, increase a lot of power drain because those computers are heavy on the power and the cooling 
that's going to create a lot of noise, which is going to mean you're going to have to do even more rafting and even more noise dampening to get make it good for the anti-submarine warfare, which is all going to require uh, which is all going to require space in the hull, which means you're going to need a bigger hull, which means to get the same operating performance you're going to need more power. Okay, well you've got a bigger hull, you've got it full of this stuff, and then you want to add in on more weapons. And you want to add in weapons so it can do the anti-submarine warfare role with at least a couple of helicopters plus total ray sonar mm -hmm. and all that. And you soon end up with something which is roughly the size of, well, let's be honest, a Burke or Burke replacement probably these days. And that's the thing. You know, that's what a Burke is. It's a one-stop shop designed by committee. And we can talk about how, frankly, it might, it's more sensible for small navies to have one-stop shops. But that's also then usually going to be translated to less hulls, because whilst you and I might think that actually having 18 one-stop shops is probably the best scenario, um, the, the Treasury might go, well, hang on, hang on. You said you needed 12 anti-submarine warfare ships and six air defense ships. So if we give you 12 anti-submarine warfare ships that also do air defense, then you've got 12 for air defense and 12 for anti-submarine warfare, and you don't need six more ships. So you can do it with only 12. Mm hmm Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it's. I mean, just, if just I mean, apart from the major surface combatants, you know, where, where theoretically, yes, you could probably make an argument for a uh frigate a, a light frigate dash sloop class for numbers um but not two certainly but when you look at some of the other stuff you've got you know the albions you've got we in in terms of amphibious capability uh, and and similar so we've got two albions uh coming in at just under 20,000 tons apiece we've got three bay class um left after we sold logs bay to the australians um king chul yes so oh. originally we had four but when you look at them what were their 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 16000 ton basically 16000 ton diminutives <laughs> they have slightly less onboard systems but their their lsds and the Albions are LPDs, but the the bays actually have more flight deck space. So, you know, it, you, you're really almost doubling up on on capabilities at that point. And then, and then but the you trouble have... is, I would say the thing is, you do need that many hulls to lift the amount of equipment you need to move in what is in fact a light brigade now. Well, yeah, but then you've also on top of that, you've got Argus. Which is the biggest of the, of the three classes that I I'd be look I'm looking at. You know, Argus is twenty eight thousand tons, but then you look at Argus and okay, she specifically is fitted out as a um, casualty treatment ship, a hospital ship, but her overall profile is very similar in in general layout to both the bays and the Albions. You know, you've mm -hmm. got a a hangar deck of indeterminate size aft. Big superstructure forward, primarily designed to support amphibious operations, and yet somehow we're running around with three different classes at three wildly different displacements, all of which are probably end up going to be doing roughly the same job when, it, if push comes to shove. 
and that's separated out over seven hulls. So if, well, now six, because we sold one, but originally seven. So it would And make remember it... that time when we had that, when we had all seven, we also had HMS Ocean, and I think it was, was it Lustrous, which was also fitted as LPH? Yeah. So, so we had actually technically nine hulls. Nine hulls split over f- f- five classes. <laughs> Ocean, uh, uh, yeah, five classes. Yeah, three of which, three of which were one-offs at that. By that. Oh, point. and also remember, there's also the point class, which is an extra four hulls. So that's thirteen hulls over six classes. Um. Yeah. Have we have we still got the points? I said we have, we still have the points. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, when you when you look at it all, oh yeah, they're but they're they're kind of. The the point uh, the point see the point class I can forgive because they are <coughs> if you excuse me, um, they are row row ships which are literally yes. being taken in service. Yeah, and and they're and they they they're usually serving as merchant ships. They're they're, yeah. they're in merchant service, so I can forgive the point class being somewhat different because um, they do have to have this this alternate role, whereas everything else is is gray steel, so. You know, with just taking that the 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 amphibious tasking as an example, it to me it would make far 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 more sense to get a through deck LPH LPD design. You know, through deck LPH is is LPD is an LHD. Yeah. So okay, LHD. So get get a 25... <laughs> just adding in more confusion. Yes, adding in more fun. It so goes from being just... a landing platform dock to a landing helicopter dock. D- d- design something. Design something that is design an LHD design that's somewhere in the mid twenty thousands of tons. Um, you know, twenty five thousand tons or so, and just build six six to eight of them. Um, does it have to be in the mid twenty five thousand tons? Because I can really like the Trieste class. Um, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be. I'm just, I'm just sort of ballparking something that's a bit, bigger than the, it's a bit bigger than the bays and the uh, full loaded uh, and the Albions. And it's, um, yeah, I've, I've just got to say, I've just gone for something that's a little bit bigger than the Albions and the bays, but a little bit smaller than Argus to try and be somewhere in the middle. <laughs> but I mean, you know, Tri- I mean, the the uh, my own my only concern with something like Trieste is that uh, Trieste is big, which would mean you probably wouldn't shake six to eight of them out of the Ministry of Defense. It depends how how hmm. many um how how long am I actually allowed to spend in individual rooms alone with the members of the Ministry of Defense and the Treasury who will be making this decision because. If I'm allowed only a few minutes, maybe not. But if I'm allowed to have them in those rooms for days, with me just talking at them, mm-hmm. we could get them. Admittedly, at the end, they they might be putting in for their pension and crying a lot, but that because they just heard so much about ships. But you know, I can talk for days about ships. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it's 
uh, the, and the, to be honest, the thing is, with Albion and the, the bays being sub twenty thousand tons, even a twenty five thousand tonner would be a significant upgrade. Yeah. And then, and then you've got you know they can all do the roles, and it's they've got a big hangar space under the flight deck, so it wouldn't be particularly difficult to go if you want uh, an Argus replacement. It wouldn't be particularly difficult to go well on this one. We're just going to do. Deck landing ops, no hangar space, these, uh, and I, and and just or minimal hangar space, and convert the rest into. Um, I think we have to. Yeah, I think we do have to be slightly time. worried though. We're, we're slightly lucky we're getting away with this uh, without Jamie here because if he was here, he'd be pointing out that the Car Canberra class mm -hmm. are um, twenty-seven and a half thousand tons, and. Yeah, I know it worked, but I don't want a ship like that and that looks like that in the Royal Navy. It's just, it, it just, it's ugly. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I, I, ideally, ideally, you'd want something a bit bigger if you could. But there's also the case of, can we actually? I mean, can 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 will? It's kind of what we would want versus what we are likely to actually get. What we want is a Trieste class. What we probably get is a Canberra class. Yeah, I mean, yeah, having having eight Triestes would be hilarious fun, but <laughs> having eight Triestes would probably make uh, would probably make most people go. So, Britain, when are you planning on rebuilding the empire? Oh, you haven't noticed we got that we started yesterday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What, what what do you mean? Uh, well, yes, we see once we got the eight Triestes, we then decided there were various islands in the Mediterranean which we fancied having. Yeah, see, I mean, there's there there are they are there. Yeah, no. Put my teeth back in. There are a bunch of um, the the Americans also had similar platforms: the America class, the Wasp class. But they are massive. Yeah, and designed for American they're, they're, style manning. They're north of forty thousand tons, so I you don't know, that, think we're ever going to get our hands on any of those. That's sort of one of the reasons why I sort of the Trieste class I sort of came up with, and I was talking about them because they are designed on British style manning, you know, mm. and European style manning. They carry four hundred sixty crew. They can stand that they can operate indefinitely with six hundred and four marines aboard, but their maximum capacity is roughly a thousand and sixty. So that's a reinforced battalion. Uh, they have well deck. They have all sorts of different things. It's 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 an interesting vessel. It is a very interesting vessel. Yeah, mm. and I mean, if you if 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 for whatever reason the navy is thoroughly and completely opposed to having anything with a through deck, which you know might persuade people that we should have a few more aircraft in the fleet air arm, um, there is always the um, the U.S. is currently in the process of building its um, San Antonios. They haven't finished yeah. the production run yet, and they're almost exactly. On the money for my ballpark estimate, they're mid twenty thousand ton um, LPDs, effectively. Yep. 
So well, the advantages of having an LHD. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's loads of advantages to it. But if you, you and I have really... talked before, is is yeah. you can put a ski ramp on it, and then it's a backup aircraft carrier for the fact that we only have two of those. Yes, which is why you want the LHD ideally, but yeah, which is also why you want the Trieste ideally because that's the mm. bigger flight deck. Yes, but again, you know, the, these are the kind of things which make a lot of sense, which therefore means that they're almost certainly never going to be picked up on by <laughs> the politicians because you know, Trieste, the R and D costs are already there handily. The the Italians have already paid for them. Yes, so it's even, all done. Even if even if they tried to foist a little bit of the uh, costs off onto us, us, if we ordered a few more, um, even then, at least we know the thing already works. Well, BA <laughs> was already BA was already involved in the design construction process, so honestly, it'd be just mm. a case of mm. BA do your thing, build what, build some. Yes, yeah. they're gonna chart, they're gonna milk it for it, build the the Anglo version of it, but yeah. you know. Well, you know what's quite amusing? Um, mm? Trieste actually carries more firepower than a Type 31. <laughs> Although, having said that, you could try and sell it to the MOD as a self-escorting landing ship. <laughs> Let's get over this before people start going, are you sure? Firepower carried by a Trieste-class armament. Free Otto Malera 76 millimeters. Okay, that's already better. Uh, mm -hmm. 325 millimeter 80 RCS. Okay, the 40s probably do count. So they got 376 instead of the 57 millimeter, mm -hmm. and they got 325s instead of the 240s. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think I probably prefer the 240s. And they have 16 silver A50 VLS for 16 A50. As to 15 or 30 missiles or 32 cam ER missiles. Yeah, that's officially yeah. more fun. Because <laughs> that's because cam ER is known in, in Royal Navy world as um, C Scepter. Yes. And the Type 31s carry 24 C Scepters, whereas the Triestes carry 32, or yeah. as it says, or 16 um, Aster 30s, aka C Viper. <laughs> Okay, so we've got to, that would be a ship which could officially could back up a Type Forty Five. Yeah, at that point you're talking about like if there's two, if there's three, if there's three, if we had three Triestes operating together in in the fleet, they'd actually have between them they could carry more Sea Vipers than the Type Forty Five that's escorting them. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um, or at least they'd be carrying 24 so and another sort of, I don't know, what, tw they'd carry 24, uh, if they just were loaded with eight Sea Vipers and eight slots filled with cam, uh, with cam so they had 24 of that, they'd have, yeah, that you, you would suddenly find yourself with less of a need of going, well, we, we need a short range, we need a close-in picket ship to defend these ships. Really? You do? Or it would be a Trieste sitting, a British Trieste sitting next to a Queen Elizabeth guy, and the Queen Elizabeth going, So where's our escort? The Trieste just going, Have you seen my 76s? <laughs> you don't need an escort. I'm here. Mm -hmm. Officially, no, then that would have to be the Duke of Edinburgh class because <laughs> it would have to be the Duke of Edinburgh escorting the Queen <laughs> and surprisingly yes. more firepower. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, actually no, it couldn't be. It wouldn't be the Duke of Edinburgh class. We'd have to cut them after ships, which which carriers which got involved in combat. So they'd have to be HMS Unicorn, which of course attack land targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, HMS formidable. formidable. Yeah, and they they call one of the Type Thirty Ones formidable. Oh, that's a waste of a name. Well, they did name one. That's actually slight pivot temporarily, although with us, who knows how far they're down the rabbit hole this will go. I I do remember saying at the time when they named them the Inspiration class, I, I was thoroughly um, confused because they're like, you know, we want we want this class to represent all the qualities and capabilities of the Royal Navy and things that the Royal Navy should aspire to. And you're looking at it going, okay, active. Yes, I can see that. Bulldog. Mm-hmm. Uh, venturer, formidable. Yeah, I can see how you know, even just as a name, let alone what the ships did, you can see why someone would want those qualities in Royal Navy officers. And then, like Campbelltown, it's like, what's Campbelltown best known for? Being a massive floating bomb. I- I'm not necessarily sure this is what we like. We, I think Jutland proved we do not want to encourage the Royal Navy to become massive floating bombs. Um, I mean, I understand that. Yeah, you know, the general, the whole operation is probably something that they should aspire to but um yeah g- compared to all the others it was just like that, well the thing is someone they, has not quite thought this through <laughs> they could have gone with well i suggested when there was this, there was some discussions going off with us i said look you know pick one of the names of one of the ships involved in operation claymore which was the first ever mm. commander operation and you have a choice of Somali, which they probably wouldn't go for, Bedouin, which they probably wouldn't go for, Tartar, which they probably wouldn't go for, or Eskimo, which they probably wouldn't go for, although mm. they should go for. Eskimo is a great one. But again, again, like Campbelltown, it does have issues with having lost its bowels on a, you know, a couple of occasions. In service of a nation, but maybe you do not want a Royal Navy ship walking around which considers its bow a dispos- a, an expendable weapon. It's expensive, Okay. However, mm. there is also HMS Legion. She was part of that. And that's actually quite a good name. Although, if you told the game the Royal Navy, well, this is one of the inspiration class, one name is Legion. That might make the politicians think, hang on, they want more ships, don't they? They mm-hmm. want a legion of ships. But you also had Queen Emma and Princess Beatrix, which were the landing ships, mm-hmm. which could also be involved. You know... You really shouldn't have said anything about these about the Triestes because now I'm looking up costs. Yeah, I I, I did think about this when I said that. I, I'm realizing that cost 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 adjusted um, for 2022. Yeah. Um. Two Albi. Yeah. If yes, yeah, if we cost adjust for for modern prices. The two Albions cost us about as much as a Trieste would. Yeah. And they can carry the new LCAT landing cataround vessels, which the Italians have got. And which are from the, mm. from the looks of it. I mean, obviously they're much better, they're much better armed, considering there's just a couple of phalanx on the Albions. Um, but one Trieste can also carry more than twice the Marine complement <laughs> if you pack it in. Yeah. Um, and 
Yeah, and the Albions have two landing spots for helicopters. The Trieste can carry 12 actual aircraft. So, yeah. I mean, the Trieste, one, I mean, it's in euros, but you're just for pounds. The Trieste's, a Trieste would cost about as much as a Type 45. Mm -hmm. So, that's not, you know, for a near 40,000 tons a uh, uh, combatant that can do an awful lot of stuff that's not actually a bad deal <laughs> nope uh, which again because it's a good idea it will probably never be done but there you go um and so. also because it's a landing platform dock that means it does have quite a heavy hull which means that um it'll be an interesting vessel to have in certain diplomatic scenarios around Oh, you want to play Dodgems with me, do you? Oh, uh, this will be fun. But, no, they never do the sensible things. No. Oh, well. Um, so, other things in the, that are going on in the world that are slightly less depressing than uh, the continued inability of most... To, uh, government departments to actually do anything resembling a good idea. I wonder if we could start a petition. Anyway, uh, yes, other things which were sort of we were we were going to talk about. We did have other things before we got distracted off onto this sort of world. And also, you, why did you have to bring up the inspiration class? Because now all the other options of names are going around in my head, and it's making me more and more furious. I mm -hmm. caramba, I caramba, I caramba. So. The other thing we we're going to talk about, of course, is torpedoes killing torpedoes and submarines using surface-to-air missiles to, well, actually engage aircraft. And Drac and I were discussing this. First of all, sort of broke the thing of, well, actually, if you consider some modern torpedoes are actually designed to be rippled off, and so they have protection that things which are on the surface they won't engage, that could actually be the safest place for them to be to avoid a torpedo. Hmm. Yeah, At I mean, which the, point does the, the, your does your P8 or P3 need to start carrying a slam ER or something? The big I mean the biggest the bigger um the bigger oh what's the heck? The bigger torpedoes, the sub-launched ones obviously are in, in get designed to engage surface targets. But um I mean the the funny thing is that where the this this is um sea spider that they they're looking at which i think is like the second or third time someone's tried to invent an anti torpedo torpedo in in this mm -hmm. century um but this one perhaps looks like it might actually work properly it it does mean it does render a rather amusing set of imagery in my head because of course a torpedo is basically nowadays it's it is actually you know people talk about underwater surface vehicle unmanned underwater surface vehicles the modern torpedo has been an unmanned underwater surface attack vehicle for a very very long long time already mm -hmm. with all of its sensors and communications gear etc etc um this is my point every time someone says this is all brand new and no one's ever had this sort of capability before and you go they have it's called a torpedo. It's been around for a while. It's an evolution. It's far better than the old torpedoes. 
but it's still a torpedo. Mm. Um, which, you know, it, it's it's one of those things I've always, I, I kind of look at it and I go, this is you're using a smaller unmanned um basically a smaller USV, which is effectively what we're looking at here. Um we're looking at and we're looking at it going, okay, well, we're gonna use this smaller USV to kill this slightly larger USV. Um or UUV, whatever you I think it's UUV, isn't it? Unmanned underwater vehicle. Mm -hmm. The S is usually the surface vehicles. Um but given how large modern torpedoes are and how much bigger they can get um, when we look at some of the torpedo tubes that were considered for late Cold War era subs and everything, it brings to, to my mind this rather amusing idea of if a number of successful anti-torpedo torpedoes are developed, then given the size, complexity and weight of modern torpedoes, you could end up with a slightly larger modern torpedo that carries its own anti anti torpedo torpedoes yes and, and the cycle could go on yeah and so you end up you end up with this um massive underwater dogfight between the torpedoes the anti torpedo torpedoes the anti anti torpedo torpedoes and the you know the anti 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 torpedo torpedo torpedoes <laughs> It's great. It's it's a symmetrical growth. Um, it would be, it, it, be interesting to see to see these these things come out because if if they are fairly successful and there's there's no particular reason to assume they won't be. Um. Uh, you know, I certainly. I mean, certainly, apart from anything, they've um, they've finally they've they've had enough opportunities and chances to um, get it right. I think um, I think it, it could change a lot for submarines. Because um, if they end up with these things, at, at, you know, reliable, fairly reliably countering incoming torpedoes, the same way as you could say a modern surface-to-air missile like a Sea Viper or an SM6 is a reasonable, reasonably reliable countermeasure to an incoming anti-shipping missile. Yeah. Then in the conventional sense as as I just, as I kind of indicated before as they stand existing and anti-shipping torpedoes may be somewhat ineffective which rend actually renders a lot of submarines significantly less effective because not not all attack subs um carry sub-launched anti-shipping missiles and a torpedo is usually a much better bet at sinking a ship than a missile is anyway. The whole, you know, let water in the bottom, not air in the top thing. Yep. At which point, how does the submarine evolve past this? 
you know how i mean as we said you know you could have much larger 30 32 inch torpedoes that have their own countermeasures to the countermeasures but do you 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 look at the way that missiles developed after surface to air missiles got in on the act you know missile anti shipping missiles they went low they went fast etc well you can't go low with a torpedo because you know that's the wrong way <laughs> the target's the other way um you can go low but you can sort of do a sort of thing of where you come up almost vertical almost sort of vert- that's yeah. horizontal horizontal vertical, vertical. Oh, perfect. Yeah. sorry brain dying for a second now. Mm. vertically from straight underneath the, sh- the ship to come up and really smash it straight underneath the bottom yeah although at that point you need but- very expensive deep diving torpedoes yeah um but you know you can go fast i mean there have been rocket propelled torpedoes in the past obviously with very little in the way of guidance because of the way it does it but i'm i'm wondering if maybe kind of like with modern surface uh, modern air to air missiles pre ramjet where they had these dual dual pulse motors where you'd have a, a rocket motor that would fire the missile in up into the sky or along the sky if you're firing it from an aircraft and then that would burn out and then there'd be a smaller sustainer motor to either keep it going or give it a bit of a boost as it got towards the edge of its range um could you maybe see again probably need a larger torpedo but maybe a torpedo that does all the wonderful homing and guidance etc that you can get with a modern torpedo but has a two-stage system where it has a conventional you know shrouded propeller or whatever to drive it through the water but then if it detects an incoming anti-torpedo torpedo which obviously is running on propellers as well then maybe it has some kind of rocket propulsion for the last stage where it can just accelerate up to several hundred knots thus making you know you know leaving leaving the countermeasure flat-footed but hopefully it's close enough to its target that further guidance is unnecessary as long as it can get up to speed now that's going to involve compromises to the hydrodynamics one way or the other because the shape of a torpedo that's going to be moving at 300 knots is very different to the shape of a torpedo and and moving in an air bubble is going to be very different to a torpedo that's moving through the water at less than a hundred. But well, we already have torpedo that are, uh, torpedoes which go pretty darn fast. Um, the, mm. the Russians are always making claims about making very very fast torpedoes, but we already know that sort of the British one is fairly. It's probably up there as of the quickest in service, and that's seventy plus knots. Hmm. Conservative estimate, courtesy of the joyous people that is in Tom Clancy. I, if it's written in Tom Clancy and someone messages me and goes, you'll be talking about secret information. It's not secret. Because mm-hmm. I, we do have, I don't know about you, but I do have those emails where people sometimes go, you shouldn't be talking about this. And I go back, it's written about in Tom Clancy. You cannot claim something secret when Tom Clancy has written in his book. If I'm using the same figures which Tom Clancy used, I can cite that as my source. And we can all know how inaccurate Tom Clancy is on many things. So if you're actually coming after me and saying that this, you're basically saying Tom Clancy got it right, which <laughs> is quite scary. Yeah. No, no. Well, it, it's, it's something to keep an eye on. I have a feeling one of the things you have to sort of 
realize and it's an interesting question which someone did put up to me and i i had to say interesting time as patron my patron vote this month both questions that have won are came from the same person never happened before that one but the reason i'm getting into is one of the other questions came in was are we seeing a similar time now as you had in the sort of 18 in the late 19th century where technology was developing at such a pace that a ship which was built in 1880 was by the time of 1890 completely outclassed by the new ships entering service. And you sit there and go, well, I'm not sure if the ship's completely outclassed, but there is a certain thing of you do need to find a way to be able to, well, you and I are fans of Stanflex, and if I, uh, that was another thing I had a question the other day of people going, so the Ivor Hoodfelt class, and I was going, well, pretty much I think that's the only class which all three of us on Bill Trumps are fans of. Mm. I think it's one of the few classes which you, all three of us are universally going, we like this class, we like what it does at the price point it is, we like the value it gives to Danish Navy, etc., and all those things. But Stanflex is pretty much one of the only systems you have functioning where you can rapidly upgrade your systems. Because you think about it, you just have to build the modules. As long as it fits in the module. Yeah. Although, given that they're designed to fit in standard 20-foot containers, or, uh, or you know, or whatever it is, I, can't, I think mm. it's 20-foot containers, or whatever the container size in question is, um, It's just some something that comes to mind about just getting a massive, getting a one one massive container ship, not the one that Sal recently linked us, which is an abomination. But um, yeah, we uh, we managed to avoid talking about the mask thing, which Sal sent us for so long. We will we'll probably get into that in a second because mm. I think Sal sent us to that to us to basically wind us up. Yeah, or, or we can just wait till he come comes on again, and then he can debate uh, about it. Oh, we 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 will have to talk about it when he next comes on, but we will also have to talk about it ourselves a bit. Yeah, but maybe that'd be maybe something to have Jen, we talk about next week when Jamie's back. But um, I'm I'm just thinking, you, know, you you could actually have, you know, like Argus was a container ship that they brought into and refitted into service. If <laughs> you want to do a one-off hull, if you have a, a navy that's based around Stanflex systems, and we know you can swap them out pretty quickly and easily. You could actually get a reason a reasonable size container ship, maybe one with a maybe couple of thousand TEU capacity. Stick Not a, whatever this abomination is, which no. Mask is putting out designs of. Stick a socking great set of cranes on the back, taking up some of that capacity. And please note with this ship, am I the only one who notices that the structure superstructure is forward where all the crew are supposed to live and then the life raft and the life activation is well back towards the back foot of the mm. ship i mean this is that's the most abomination but you know with, with with my with my idea it's like if you stick a few big cranes on the back of a medium small to medium-sized container ship yeah you could load a ton of stanflex modules because they are tu equivalent stack them on like you were stacking containers paint the whole thing gray and you now have an at sea warship reconfiguration support vessel 
Okay, maybe you don't want to do it while they're underway at sea, but you pull, no. in, you pull into a, a sheltered harbor or something, you know, a little or a, or a bay or something where you're not rocking and rolling all over the place, particularly violently, and you could have every Stanflex module you could possibly want on your. You're basically, you've basically rebuilt the Monab system, the Mo mobile naval basing system, which the Royal Navy was constructed in the 1930s. Hmm. And it worked very well throughout World War II. Thank you very much. Yeah. So that, at that point, you'd be like, ah, well, you know, we have half a dozen small sloop frigates wandering around the Pacific, um, you know, mostly configured for anti-piracy. But now, all of a sudden, war were declared. We need them to be carrying surface-to-air missile systems and towed arrays and drones. It's like, okay, well, pull into the nearest harbour. Um, along comes our, our, our reconfiguration ship. And a few days later, we are now reconfigured and ready for war. It almost could be a few hours later, let's be honest, for each individual ship, the speed at which they replace them. If you have mm. multiple cranes, you could probably do it very quickly. But yeah. Um, so because we know Sal will be listening to us, initial perspectives on the new Mask Super container ship. Mm-hmm. Who hurt them? My only my only suggestion to this is looking at this is that someone who has been a, who's a crewman on one of their ships has hurt one of the senior directors so badly that fire merely firing them is not enough. They must produce something which is going to absolutely destroy their lives. I would also say putting your life your life boat that far down a ship away from your theoretical accommodation plot is um, an interesting choice. Mm. A very interesting choice, especially when you consider is that a straight bow I'm looking at? Drac has gone silent. Clo close to it. He, 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 he's making an engineering assessment. And he's also in mild shock. Um, I would agree with Sal's tweet comment that the um, parametric motion is going to be a killer because of the boxes being stacked above the bridge level. Um, there are several people who commented that it has strong Great Lakes vibes. Um, which are not necessarily ships I particularly think are the best ones in the world. Hmm. It just... Um... This does not look a good design. I am wondering if this is a design which has been produced because of the experience of the Suez Canal and other things, etc. And they're going, well, if you put the people right at the front, they have a great view for conning the ship. And it's kind of like the debate with aircraft carriers over where you position the island. You know, you position it forward for conning and that gives you the better view over the bow so you can be more precise in your navigation, you control the ship. 
or you position it aft, which is better for the you know uh, you know the operation of the aircraft. But it does seem a little interesting. Yeah. I'm always worried when Drac goes quiet like this. It means he's thinking something, and it means I'm, I should be getting worried because something is going to be produced in a second, which is going to make me have to reevaluate the sanity of the world. I mean... I'm just looking at it and... Just going, why? Well, the thing is, I suppose the idea is you need to make your ships bigger. And I'm sort of going, I, 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 I'm not quite sure why they're making it bigger. It's, it's, there, there are... Well, there are various articles being produced about this. One of them is actually entitled, and I, I do love this, Thank God I Won't Be On Board. This ship is also going to be methanol-powered. Uh, a captain named Arthur Arjun Vikram Singh, currently CEO mm -hmm. of Quantum BSO, said, Thank God I'm assured and call it, uh, called it a monster. Uh, I, I would agree. Um, I, I'm looking at some of the other designs available for this vessel, and when you realise that the funnel is not the entire back, it's only the back port side, so they can take a lot of containers. Um, it's going to be a 16,000 TU container vessel powered by carbon-neutral methanol. Oh, because that's not going to be a hazard in and of itself. And the point is, this design has been knocking around since about 2020. And mayors keep talking about it. And so far, no one seems to have actually, considering how fast you can actually build container ships, if you give them the to the Koreans, etc., the fact that one hasn't entered the service yet makes me wonder if this is just all a long con. But yeah. Well, I'm, uh, to be honest, I'm looking at it and just going, this design screams to me one thing and one thing only, which is that somebody wants to just stack as many containers as is humanly possible on a given hull. Well, it's um, going to be apparently built by Hyundai Heavy Industries. And they're going to be beginning operation in 2024. So we're still going to see one next year, apparently. Not next, well, not next year, but the year after next. Which is kind of strange when they started talking about in 2020. So it's taken them four years. Well, they've taken them. Again, with container ships, they usually have a quicker turnaround than that time, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't want to imagine how many containers are going to go overboard. Well... I'm just I'm I'm just the, looking through some things. basically the containers at the top of that at the top of those stacks, if the ship hits anything other than mill pond conditions, you can say goodbye to. At which point I don't I think they already are, but uh, if they're not, at which then but uh, 
if this thing goes into service, they will be. People will be selling not just, you know, ship your container with us. It'll be if you want some additional security, you can pay extra and we'll stack your container at the bottom. If you pay the cheap rate, then we'll put your container at the top of the pile and you can, you know, insert prayer to deity of choice <laughs> as to whether or not you actually get the thing at the other end. Uh, the machine gods will be getting a lot of prayers. Mm -hmm. I do love the way that Mask has been preempting some of the misgivings, apparently, and they've stated the bridge will feature, in, would feature improved crew comfort right in front, and that other ships, such as heavy lift vessels and offshore and some offshore boats have their superstructure right on the bow. Now, yeah, not many of them require a, a you know a small train to get to the stern where the engines are. No, you don't, not on the offshore boats. That's definitely not a. <laughs> it's going to be three hundred and fifty meters long, I think. Yeah. At, at which point you might as well build the engineers' compartment. The engineers. Um... You might as well build the engineer's accommodation into the aft part of the hull in the engineering section. And then you can hire two entirely different crews because they're never going to meet. Oh. You just you say to them, hey, you, we, we've hired a command crew and they, they live a quarter of a mile away. And in between is every container known to mankind. So... You know, it, treat treat them as a kind of distant deity. Uh, the, <laughs> occasionally, mysterious instructions will come through on this screen, and just obey the instructions, <laughs> and then and 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 then at the end of the voyage, you will be paid. Yes. <laughs> oh. And then the the bridge crew can be you know virtually anybody you've just hauled out of out of um. The, the nearest high school because all you do is that is like here's here's the th throttle stick <laughs> here's the wheel bit um here's the sat all of this and, line on the map yeah and uh you know and you know, map you know put put the throttle forward and the ship will magically go forward you don't have to think about anything else <laughs> i just well, yeah, it shows you which crew they care about in terms of their survivability, though, because on all pictures, it seems to be designed that the life car the lifeboats go aft. Well, yeah, you actually I've... have to you have to get qualifications to be a ship's engineer. <laughs> you have to get qualifications to be a ship's master as well. Yeah, but are they actually going to be employing ship's masters on these things, or are they going to be employing somebody with their feet up watching the? Uh ship-based equivalent of a autopilot taking them along their way. Legally, they're supposed to have a master aboard. There's a lot of things you're supposed to do legally when it comes to commercial shipping. How many of them are actually done? Well, that would be an interesting thing to get Sal and uh, Kate Jameson on to talk about. Mm. Their stories, though, might then cause a lot of people to have certain career flashbacks i mean this is one of the this is one of the reasons why um 
when people are like, oh, you could go live in a foreign country, uh, move to a foreign country. I go, yes, yes, theoretically, yes. However, a good chunk of the foreign countries that would potentially be on that list of places to move to are over literally overseas. I mean, everything's overseas from the UK, but Europe, you can at least stick a moving lorry or seven on the Channel Tunnel. Um, but you know, if if you're going to move to Canada or Australia, New Zealand, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, so you start have... buying new when you get there. Well, yeah, but there's also a lot of stuff that you'd want probably want to take with you that you'd have to stick onto, um, onto a ship. Or oh, have family members keep flying backwards and forwards with large, uh, large suitcases. And they can go through Toronto Pearson Airport multiple times. See, that's how you do, that's how you end up with not having any of your stuff by the end of it. <laughs> Drax face on the idea of going through Toronto Pearson Airport multiple times. <laughs> oh. I mean, I've... There are worse fates, but they're difficult to imagine. I'm actually redesigning. Uh, I keep coming up with the ideas and the plans for what we could do for our Australia trip if we, if hopefully it comes across and we sort of we get it all sorted out. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the criteria which keep coming up is what are the airport reviews like? Because I do not want to put Drac through Toronto Pearson Airport again. <laughs> he might kill someone. <laughs> you can scratch mite off of that. <laughs> I mean, seriously, if 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 dash when we go back to Canada, um, I have made the executive decision that we are not flying. We're flying into, into Halifax, Canada. haven't we? <laughs> no, no, we're not. We're not. We're not flying into into Canada. Period. We're flying into the states and driving across the border. Okay. Yeah. Because Easy. if you remember that cr crossing the border from the U.S. to Canada was a far less painful experience than Toronto <laughs> Pearson. <laughs> It no. was a, it was a very interesting experience. I think we half we got through mostly because we had a Canadian with us. Yeah, well that's all right. Glenn can come down and uh, say hi. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And for those of you who are listening, yes, that means I would rather suffer the suffer the TSA than um, the Canadian airport system. Uh. Seriously, he Drac had been happily telling everyone that Heathrow is the worst airport in the world for years until he met Toronto Pearson. He yeah, now can no longer say Heathrow is the worst airport in the world. You know, you so now he, have the horrific, yeah. the horrific trinity of um, Stansted, Toronto Pearson, and Shypol. <laughs> oh. have you been for any of the Moscow airports recently? Uh, no, uh, I haven't. Oh, I haven't. I haven't been to Russia since. Well, yeah. I mean, it'd be apart from anything, it'd be very difficult to get into one at the moment. But um, you know, I haven't. I I was. I went through a Russian airport. Uh, when 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 I was at uni, so about fifteen years, fifteen sixteen years ago, um, we flew into Moscow Airport. Um, to be honest, it looked a bit grimy, but we got through quickly enough. Um, the the airport version of the KGB pulled me up on my way out because I had a um, Swiss Army knife at the bottom of my backpack that I'd put in a, a for a different trip in the UK and forgotten about. 
which was quite amusing because it meant that I'd gone through Heathrow Airport and their systems hadn't picked up or had an issue with the fact that I had a Swiss Army knife in there. But, you know, they wanted to oh. me to sign a confession in Russian before they let me go. And I was just like, no, you can keep this. It's like it's only like a pound fifty cheap Swiss Army knife. You can keep that and I'll just go. I'm not signing anything that's written in Cyrillic. Yeah. Some things never change. Oh, something else for the mayor's tip. They, they, so most importantly, adequate hull strength was also a key parameter to safeguard, with the accommodation plot normally working as a hull stiffener when placed further backwards. New arrangements for lifeboats and navigation lines had to be developed, plus new cameras to support the captain's view when navigating. And you're sitting there going, um, this doesn't sound good. If if you're worried about the hull being stiff enough and you're having to design all this just so you can have your... You know when people have a, what they call a inverted commas... Data, well, I call inverted commas good idea. People consider a good idea and then everything else has to change to fit their good idea. And they have to do a whole lot of extra work to fit that good idea and make it work. Well, I might have a feeling these mass ships are a good idea. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. They're all being developed because they're going to be truly carbon neutral. Because methanol is carbon neutral. Yeah, because... Um... I mean, I'm all for lowering the impact of the pollution impact of ships on the environment. But methanol. Yeah. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of gallons of methanol in a civilian car container ship. With civilian mm -hmm. container ship maintenance practices, I mean, I mean, there are easier ways of getting that. Well, no, there are harder ways of getting floating bombs into ports, but that's a good one. I'm just wondering whether these ships are going to replace LNG carriers as the most likely to blow up an entire harbor. Maybe not all the entire harbour, but you know, as uh, as the Simpsons said, celebrate the freedom of your country by blowing up a small portion of it. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 in nicest way, I would hope that these ships come with a free fireboats to be uh, supplied to every harbour where they are going to visit. Hmm. Please note, listener, dear listeners, we are not anti-green revolution. We are both... Well, Drac has managed to go for his full autarky on electricity. Mm -hmm. He has solar power and he has batteries. I am waiting patiently for the knowledge that he has installed a hydroelectric power generation system somehow. 
I don't know. With the amount of rain we've had recently, that might not be such a bad idea. That's what I was thinking. And I'm fairly certain at a certain point he'll also be putting a wind-powered one, but it'll be powered by the screams of politicians who've annoyed him. <laughs> um, but leaving that to one side, you know, the, we are both very environmentally conscious. We both have studied have studied at various points, because in a nice way, my part is I teach some bit, and Dragos was involved in it with engineering career. And yet we're both sitting here looking at this design and going to be make this carbon neutral. This is this is the good idea, fairy. You've had one dream, and that was to make it methanol powered and carbon neutral, and you have done a lot of changes to do to turn this into this ship. And actually, I'm wondering if that's why the crew accommodation is so far away from engineering. Perhaps they worked out what the potential blast radius would be for it, and they decided the crew would be better off at the other end. But why have they got the lifeboats down that end? Surely you need some lifeboats forward as well. As I said before, it depends how much you value certain part and parts of your crew. It just... Yeah. But, you yeah, know... Yeah, it's one of those things. We shall uh, we shall see what what occurs going hell. forward. That'll be interesting. Mm. Anyway, I think that's probably. I think we've probably been talking probably over enough for time. Today. Yes. Yeah. So I hope everyone's had a nice time. Well, we hope we haven't depressed you anymore. We hope we'll be better when Jamie's next back and. There might even be left. some good news to talk about. There might be. There might be. You never know. Some politician might have listened to us and they might be announcing that Britain's buying some Trieste class LHDs. And that they're not buying them at the cost of something else which is really frigging useful and they're not being stupid like that. They'll be stupid like that, won't they? Yeah, let's let's not let's not be too optimistic. I have to say. And if anyone wants to see it, the Mask do have a YouTube video about these ships. And what I laugh is, even in the video, where you think they don't have to deal with all the problems of control and organization and things, and issues that will come from that bow shape alone, they have not managed to line them up. They are building eight of these vessels, and they have not managed to line them up in the video. Even in the video, the line is higgledy-piggledy. They're going for a straight line, and even in that video, it's higgledy-piggledy. And I have sent Drac a link to it so he can go and watch that video. Oh, well. We shall see how it all goes. Mm. Yeah. Take care, everyone. Have Bye. fun. Bye. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off.